Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 19 this evening. Despite the pain inflicted by our enemies and despite the consequences of our own sin, we can be confident that God is causing kingdoms to rise up and others to fall. David has been through quite an ordeal. He has committed a grievous act of sin against, um, against Uriah, against his nation, against his God. And the result of his sin is that there's going to be trouble within his own family. And that trouble in his family has spread to more than just his family, but also to his nation. There are great consequences for David's sin, and David recognizes that. And in many ways, David is paralyzed because of, because of his past sin. Even though he has brought it to God and asked for forgiveness, he still is paralyzed in making choices that are right choices because he realizes that a lot of these troubles that are coming right now on his family are a result of his own sin. The most recent trouble that we've looked at is the obstinance, obstinacy of Absalom. Absalom, his son, who wants to have justice for uh, Tamar's mistreatment, the, the, the catastrophic sin that was done against Tamar by Amnon. And so Absalom, Absalom takes justice into his own hands. And then he gathers together Israel against David and effectively betrays David as the king. This leads to a battle between David's men and Absalom's men. David, as we saw last time, did not want to see Absalom die. He wanted Absalom to, to live. But his military commander, Joab, wisely recognized that Absalom was a cancer and that he only would have caused greater damage. And while he didn't go about it the right way, Joab had the, o- the overall idea right that, that Absalom was, about, was out to get David and to kill David eventually. The result of the, this battle between Absalom's man and David's men is that Absalom dies as he gets caught up in a tree. Joab kills him. David finds out in, um, at the end of chapter 18 and into chapter 19. For this evening, we want to to see that God causes kingdoms to rise and fall. And I think that's the larger picture that's going on here. What's going to happen is David's going to be restored as king and he's going to have a merciful welcome to these three individuals particularly. But I think the larger point is that God is causing kingdoms to rise and fall. So let's look at the text together, beginning with the last line of verse 8, 2 Samuel chapter 19. This is the word of God. Now Israel had fled each to his tent. All the people were quarreling throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, but now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. However, Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now then, why are you silent about bringing the king back? Then King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? 
since the word of all Israel has come to the king, even to his house. You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? Say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? May God do so to me and more also if you will not be the commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. Thus he turned the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king saying, Return you all and your servants. The king then returned and came as far as the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal in order to go to meet the king to bring the king across the Jordan. Then Shimei, the son of Girah, the Benjamite who was from Baharim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, with Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons and his twenty servants with him. And they rushed to the Jordan before the king. Then they kept crossing the ford to bring over the king's household and to do what was good in his sight. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. So he said to the king, Let not my lord consider me guilty, nor remember what your servant did wrong on the day when my lord the king came out from Jerusalem so that the king would take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come today, the first of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my lord the king. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, said, Should not Shimei be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed. David then said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zariah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Should any man be put to death in Israel today? For do I not know that I am king over Israel today? The king said to Shimei, You shall not die. Thus the king swore to him. Then Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had neither cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the the day he came home in peace. It was when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? So he answered, O my lord, the king, my servant, deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, because your servant is lame. Moreover, he has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your sight. For all my father's household was nothing but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who ate at your own table. What right do I have yet that I should complain any more to the king? So the king said to him, Why do you still speak of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, Let him even take it all, since my lord the king has come safely to his own house. David here in chapter 19 is being restored as king, and then he has these three individuals who come to him to greet him, to welcome him back into the the place of king as authority over the entire nation of Israel. Prior to this, he was the nation he was the king over the whole nation of Israel and Judah. But because of Absalom's uh, betrayal, Absalom got most of Israel to follow him. He did it by getting the elders to come on his side and the priests. And uh, or I should say his number one advisor Ahithophel. And as a result, All of Israel was behind Absalom. They thought he was going to be the better ruler for them. David just had a few thousand men who were loyal to him, who hid out in in, um, Mahanaim. But David was the one who was successful. And so now all of these people who once were following Absalom realize that our king is dead. The one who we thought was going to be the king forever, or at least as long as, as he lived, is now dead. And so what are we going to do? We have to 
we have to figure out what to do. We can either uh, continue to be at war with David or we can come, un- come back under his submission. We kind of come with our tail between our legs recognizing that we have failed, we have betrayed him, and, and beg for his mercy. So in verse 11, David sends the priests to the elders of Judah who had betrayed him. I mean, of all people, those people should have been most loyal to him, but they were put in a bad position by, by Absalom. Remember, Absalom called them to, to go with him, and they didn't know what was going on, and uh, Absalom kind of blindsided them, and effectively, if they didn't follow Absalom, they would all be killed, and so they decided not to be killed and to follow Absalom. And that worked for a time, as long as Absalom was alive, but once Absalom died, they looked like fools. David says, why have you not welcomed me back now? The, 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 the northern tribes have welcomed me back. Why haven't the southern, southern tribes done the same? David's not going to be passive here. He, his goal is to unite the kingdom. His goal is to take this northern and southern kingdom of Israel and, and unite them like, like they once were. And so David appeals to them in verse 12 on the basis of their unity. Notice, you are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. You, it may look like, because of your betrayal, that you are my enemies, but you're not. You're my brothers. We're on the same side, and so you can welcome me back to be your king. And then in verse 13, David tries to, to settle some of the differences that they have between these two, uh, these two people groups. He tries to settle the difference by by installing Amasa as their new commander. That happens in verse 13. Now, there's a couple reasons for this. One reason is apparently that David knows that Joab is a murderer. And he's not the best equipped to lead the army, which is why he says in verse 13, at the end of the verse, May God do so to me and more also if you will not be commander of the army before me continually in the place of Joab. See, Joab is, is equipped. He has the experience... He's been my right-hand man for all this time, but he's failed. And now, Amasa, it's your turn. And what this would do is, remember, Amasa was actually the military commander of whom? Of Absalom. So what this would do is help to unite them, right? To say, listen, I'm taking your military commander and making him the commander over all. So, So these people, all these people who were under the rule of Absalom before, are not going to feel too terribly when they have to follow Amasa again. Part of the main problem with Joab was his character. He was flawed man. Now, we saw some good in him last time, but, but keep in mind that he was the one who murdered Abner in cold blood because he saw that Abner was going to take his position underneath the rule of David early on in David's rule. How about Uriah? Remember, by order of David, Abner, or excuse me, Joab was the one who carried out that command. Now maybe he didn't know what, why to put this man. Maybe he thought he was performing capital punishment, so we could argue that one. But but this third one, Absalom, is very clear. He murdered Absalom when David clearly told him not to. Now we saw some positives in that, but but ultimately he disobeyed the king in doing so. Next week we'll see that he actually murders Amasa, his own cousin. So that's the first reason I think that David appoints Amasa over Joab. The second reason um, is because of Joab's sinfulness. The second reason I already mentioned, and that is that, that David wants to unite Israel. David wants to, to 
unite them through this nephew of his, this loyal man, Amasa. And so he appoints uh, Joab's cousin effectively to be the military commander. And whatever the case, the tactic worked. Notice verse 14. Thus he, David, turned the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man, one man, so that they sent word to the king. So what was David asking of them? Send word to me to welcome me back. He's not being proud here. He's just saying, let's, let's reunite. Don't be scared that I'm going to be your enemy. I'm on your side. We're brothers. So welcome me back. Ask for me to come back, and I'll come back. And when he appoints Amasa as the commander, his tactic works because that's what the people do. And so David in verse 15 is restored as king over all Israel. And then in verses 16 through 23, we see that David shows mercy to Shimei. There's going to be three individuals that, that come to greet David, and David wants to show mercy to each one of them. And again, this shows David's great character in, um, in this situation, I think. And then uh, after we look at these three, we'll, we'll see what the larger point is. Now, in order to understand this section that we just read, verses 16 through 23, we need to remember David's first encounter with this same man, Shimei. Remember, David in chapter 15 was fleeing from Absalom. And so in, in chapter 16, he arrives in Baharim and he arrives to Shimei, this relative of Saul, King Saul, who hates David and thinks that David has taken the throne away from King Saul's family. It should still be in his family, so that means he would have some residual benefit from that. You've taken that throne away from us, and you've taken it for yourself, and you've taken it wrongly. And so what does he do to David when David arrives? David's there with all of his loyal men, his mighty men standing right there, effectively his bodyguards, his, his secret service. And yet Shammai comes to him and says, you don't deserve to be king. Get out of here, you worthless fellow. All of this persecution that you're receiving on you now is because of your own sin. And remember Abishai, one of his three mighty men, one of his three um, most powerful men, Abishai was the brother of Joab. Abishai was ready to cut off his head. And he said to David, David, let me do it right now. And David said, no. What if God is sending this man, Shimei to give me these rebukes? What if God's in this? Then who am I to stop God? And so he leaves Shimei alone. And the whole way, as David and his men are going from one place to another, Shimei's up on, on a hillside, following along, throwing stones at them, and, and um, shouting curses at them. Well, David now is the king. David now is the rightful king. And boy, is this going to be awkward for Shimei, right? And yet, Shimei shows some courage by being the first one to greet him in verse 16. He comes to David and effectively has to grovel at his feet. The only other choice is to run away, to become a part of another nation. And so in verses 19 through 20, he begs David to forgive him. And again, Abishai, notice his response. Abishai, the son of Zariah, said, Should not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? So now that we've seen how it all has turned out, David, should we not carry out the capital punishment that ought to have been done before? And David says, No, not today. No one's going to die in this day. 
Notice, what he's, notice why he says that in verse 22. Look at the second part of the verse. It says, Should any man be put to death in Israel today? For do I not know that I am king over Israel today? In other words, this is a day of rejoicing for me. Why put a damper on today by killing someone? Let's just take this day for what it is and take joy in it. And so he shows mercy to Shemai. In verses 24 to 30, he shows mercy to Mephibosheth and really to Ziba as well. Again, we need to remember some of the background in order to understand what's going on here. First, in verse 24, we see that Mephibosheth, since the time that David had had left him, had not um, had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes. So probably this shows that Mephibosheth was in a state of mourning. And throughout this text, what you're going to notice is that Mephibosheth refers to David like he did in chapter 9. And that is, as my lord the king. He never says the, the name David, he never says King David, and he never says his own name. He says, instead of me, he says, your servant. And this way he's, that's how he talks to David. It shows his humility. We saw that in chapter 9, but we see it here again. And so David wants to know, why is it that you deserted me? Because when I went off to run away from Absalom, all my loyal men came with me except for you. And Ziba told me why you didn't want to do it. It was because you wanted the throne to come back to your family. Remember, Mephibosheth is the grandson of King Saul. So this was your opportunity. Now that you see some discord within the nation of Israel, this is your opportunity to take it back for yourself. And Mephibosheth clears, clears the air a little bit here. He says, no, that's not what happened. Okay, Ziba was not telling the truth in verse 25. Verse 26, O oh, my lord the king, my servant deceived me. That's talking about Ziba. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. So Ziba says, stay right here, Mephibosheth. I'm going to get a donkey so that you can come along with me to go to King David. Mephibosheth's waiting there on the porch, waiting. And notice the last part of the text, because your servant is lame. So he's crippled. He's not able to go anywhere. He's not able to go check on him. And so he's left there without an animal, without a way to get to David. And so he recognized that he has been tricked. He has been deceived. Ziba, this servant of Mephibosheth, took the only donkey that I had and made it impossible for me to come. But notice Mephibosheth's response. Even though Ziba had deceived him, even though Ziba had mistreated him, verse 27 says, Moreover, he has slandered your servant, Ziba has slandered me, to my lord the king, David, but my lord the king is like the angel of God, therefore do what is good in your sight. So I have been tricked. I have been deceived, but David, you're a wise man. You speak as if an angel of God is speaking, and so... You do whatever you see as best. And do you remember what David had given to Ziba when Ziba had claimed that Mephibosheth had betrayed him? What did David give to him? All the land, all the servants that belonged to Mephibosheth now belongs to Ziba. That's what David said. Well, if he's going to betray me, those things are no longer his. So now David has to make a choice. Right? David probably... Not probably. David was unwise in not verifying Ziba's information that he had given back in chapter 16. 
And David was unwise in gifting all the land of Saul over to Ziba, which left Mephibosheth as a traitor, effectively, even though he wasn't. Now David hears the other side of the story, and he has to make a choice. What am I going to do with this land that I should belong to Mephibosheth, I gave to Ziba. Now that I hear this other side of the story, what am I going to do? Verse 29. So the king said to him, Why do you still speak of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. Now, it doesn't say how they're going to divide it, if it's going to be 50-50 or something. But but this this whole story here is a little bit unclear. Why, why would David not take Mephibosheth now at his word and accept it as truth and give Mephibosheth back all of his land? Or why would David not follow through on the promise he made to Ziba for him to keep all the land? And, and I think David just has put himself in a difficult spot, hasn't he? That he hears two people who have come before him with two really different stories and maybe he doesn't know which one is the right one. Maybe he doesn't know who to believe. So he says, I'll split it with you. I'll allow you you two to split it between each other, I should say. It could be that David did know that Mephibosheth was right. Mephibosheth, you're right. Ziba's wrong. You deserve all of it. But do you know how kind Mephibosheth is? Mephibosheth's not going to complain about any choice that David makes. Isn't that what he said earlier? He said, your voice is like the angel of God. So... Do whatever you think is right, and I'll accept it. So David could say, Mephibosheth, you're not getting anything. Mephibosheth wouldn't do anything. Or he could say, Mephibosheth, you're getting everything, and Ziba, you get nothing. But what would what would Ziba do, do you think? See, maybe David is kind of acting like um, a parent who uses the squeaky wheel method, right? That That one child complains more than the other and so you know what in order to stop this complaining uh, I'm going to just give this to them even though it's not technically fair Mephibosheth's not going to complain he doesn't have a squeak he's not the squeaky wheel at all um, parents are wrong to do that by the way and children are wrong to do that kind of uh, pleading uh, being the squeaky wheel in order to get what they want but I think David may have some of that going on in here. Notice Mephibosheth's humble response in verse 30. He says to the king, Let let him even take it all, since my lord the king has come safely to his own house. See, I would be happy, David, if you gave it all to him, because you have been so kind to my family. Who, Who was the family of Saul prior to you letting me come and have King Saul's land around the palace and have me come, remember, and sit at the table as if I'm one of the king's sons. Who am I that you would choose me? So he was happy. <coughs> Excuse me. He was happy to take whatever David would give. David, you don't owe me anything. Mephibosheth is a humble man. David shows mercy to him, and, and really I think he shows mercy to Ziba because Ziba um, very likely was the one who was lying and didn't deserve anything. Finally, we see that David shows mercy to Barzillai in verses 31 through 43. Again, another character that we have seen before. Barzillai was one of the men who cared for David in Maenaim. David had fled from um, Absalom. 
in order to avoid a civil war within the nation of or within the city of Jerusalem and to have the whole city be destroyed, David said, we're, we're just going to flee. So when he fled, there was one man among three who came and helped David and his weary men. And he brought all sorts of supplies to him, and his name was Barzillai. And so now that David is restored as king, Barzillai wants to send his greetings again. And so David says, Know how good you've been to me. I want to return the favor. I want to show mercy to you who has shown mercy to me. Look at verse 31. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on to Jordan with the king to escort him over the Jordan. Now Barzillai was very old, being 80 years old, and he had sustained the king while he stayed at Maenaim, for he was a very great man. The king said to Barzillai, You cross over with me, and I will sustain you in Jerusalem with me. So here David's saying, You've been so kind to me. Why don't you come and live near the palace with me, and I'll take care of you for the rest of your life. Look at Barzillai's response in verse 34. But Barzillai said to the king, How long have I yet to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I'm now 80 years old. Can I distinguish between good and bad? Or can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Or can I hear any more the voice of singing men and women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? So here's the benefit of coming with you, David. I'd be able to enjoy all this great food and all this great music. But you know what? I'm 80 years old. I got one foot in the grave. And what good it would it be? I, I can barely hear anymore. My taste buds don't work as like they, they used to. And so why should I be an added burden to you? Verse 36. Your servant would merely cross over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king compensate me with this reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. However, here is your servant Chimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king and do for him what is good in your sight. So, you know, instead of going with you to the palace to live near Jerusalem or in Jerusalem near the palace, it would be better for me to actually go to my own home and die there, be buried among my fathers. Would you allow that? But instead, would you take my servant uh, Chimham or, or Kimham the king answered, Kimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what is good in your sight. And whatever you require of me, I will do for you. And the people crossed over the Jordan, and the king crossed too. The king then kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his place. Now the king went to Gilgal, and Kimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel accompanied the king. And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why had our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household and all David's men with him over to the Jordan? Then all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative to us, why then are you angry about this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has anything been taken from us or for us? But the men of Israel answered, The men of Judah said, We have ten parts in the king, therefore we also have more claim on David than you. Why then did you treat us with contempt? Was it not our advice first to bring back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were harsher than the words of the men of Israel. So David agrees to take Kimham back with him and all of Judah and half of Israel cross over. But then in these final three verses, there is this disharmony that's going on between the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah. What was 
uh, what we saw a hint of before David had left, we now see is starting to come to a head. It's starting to become more and more real. Now David will die with the kingdom united in some way, but even in, in the next chapter we're going to see some some rebellion going on. Because there's going to be one who comes in the footsteps of Absalom and tries to say the same thing that Absalom might say and try to get troops to follow him. And in fact, he's pretty successful until Joab snuffs it out and, and, um, and kills him. And so we have the simmering disunity and resentment that are going to come to a boil in chapter 20. But for now, for today, David has reunited the kingdom to some degree. So chapter 19 is about God restoring David as king. It's about David withholding his right to use his power, his authority to bring vengeance and to establish an iron fist and to show that, hey, I am the boss. How dare you leave me? How dare you betray me? Instead, he shows mercy to those who had cursed him, Shimei, to those who had allegedly deserted him, Mephibosheth, and to those who were kind to him, Barzillai. And part of the reason that David was so merciful is because he knew that much of the trouble that he had experienced and that the nation of Israel had experienced was because of his own sin. The conflict within his family was what caused conflict within the nation. He is a man who is willing to show mercy to people who have been, in, in his eyes, the collateral damage to his own sin. But I think there's something bigger going on here. And it is this, that God causes kings to fall and God raises up others to power. God causes kings to fall like Absalom and Saul before him. And God raises up others to power. And if that's true today as it was um, back in 1000 B.C., then there is nothing that we have to fear. It's amazing that when we obey God, God often accomplishes great things through us. God always accomplishes His purposes through us, but He, all, he, he accomplishes great things through our obedience. But, but amazingly, even when we disobey, God's hands are not tied. He still accomplishes His purposes. And when our enemies are overwhelming us, there's God still working for us, still working on our behalf. And I think this last area that when our enemies overwhelm us is the hardest for us to comprehend. We can understand that God can work through our obedience and God can work despite our disobedience. But how can God work when our enemies are overwhelming us? How can God work when our enemies are winning? When we are obeying, shouldn't God be bringing us blessing? rather than allowing our enemies to win. I mean, what good could God possibly be doing? The trouble for us is that we may not believe that God can accomplish His purposes when our enemies are winning. But we need to remember that God is powerful to deliver and that God delivers His people in His timing. Sometimes he delays because he's waiting for us to trust in him, like the children of Israel as they're wandering through the wilderness in numbers, right? 
God's saying, no, you generation, you were ready to enter into the promised land. And if you had trusted me, I would have allowed you. But you haven't trusted me. You think that those people are too big and too strong for your God. And so I'll wait around till another people group comes along who is willing to trust me. Sometimes he delays because he's waiting for us to trust him. Sometimes he delays because he wants to highlight his power. Right? Consider how long he delayed from the time that Israel was in bondage in Egypt to the time that he delivered them to the promised land, 430 years. Why, God? Why did you delay? Well, part of it was to wait around for a generation to trust him, but, but also part of it was to display his great glory in destroying his enemies and raising up a nation of people. So sometimes he delays because he wants to highlight his power. But, but here's what we can't miss. In the long run, God wins. And anything that looks like a setback or a defeat is all a part of his plan. In the end, God wins. God knows that He's going to win. It's not going to be a surprise to Him. He's already promised that He would win. He knows the future. And He's told us that He would win. And so anything that happens between now and then that looks like a setback or a defeat, that someone has won against God, a small battle, is really just a part of His plan, isn't it? Let's take, for example, the people of Judah. Remember during the time that they were being threatened in the book of Isaiah, to be exiled to Babylon. Judah had received a promise from God that he could and that he would deliver them, but they were not too certain about it. And so they, they hedged their bets. Right? They're like, well, God said he would, but let me just make sure of this. Let's enter into a treaty, an agreement, with this northern nation of Assyria. That way, if God doesn't come through, we always have them to fall back on. You know what God's message to Judah was at that time? He said, I am the Lord of creation. There is none like me. The nations and the gods of the nations are no match for the almighty sovereign creator of the universe. Oh, these nations may be scary to you, but they are like a drop in the bucket to me. Listen to Isaiah 40, verses 23 and 24. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but He merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. These are these powerful nations that Judah is afraid of. And God says, scarcely they have been, they've been planted and watered and they've started to spring, spring up from the root. And I simply blow on them. And they wither away like they're nothing. Friends, the fact is that God has the power to deliver a person or a nation whenever He pleases. And so here's the question. The question is not, can He? The question is not, does God have the power? The question is, when? And that's where it comes to our trusting in Him, doesn't it? We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know... Uh, all of the things that happen between now and the end. But we do know that the sovereign God who has power over all nations is in control.
control and that he is on our side. And therefore we have nothing to fear. Even at the death of Jesus, the disciples didn't understand what was going on. They were not throwing a party after Jesus died, saying, I can't wait till resurrection day. They could not fathom that the Messiah was dead. They thought that God had lost, but God was working to bring down one king, Jesus, at the hands of another, Pilate. And from a human perspective, it looked like Satan was winning. It looked like Satan had won. And I think those kinds of thoughts were going through the disciples' head, heads at the time. But the greatest act of treachery and, uh, and, and terror against the Son of God, the thing that looked like the greatest defeat, was actually the greatest victory, was it not? Because Jesus did not stay dead. God raised Him from the dead. He did not stay out of power. God seated Him at the right hand of His throne so that Christ's death actually in our eyes now looks like just a bruise on the heel. It's not that big of a deal in terms of the the larger scope of things. The real crushing blow that took place on that day was at Satan's head. A blow from which Satan will never recover. Friends, kingdoms rise and fall. And you can be sure that God is on the throne in heaven orchestrating it all. And we know from Paul's letter to the Romans that God will soon crush Satan finally under our feet. And so be comforted today. And trust in God's plan even when it looks like we have been defeated. Now David has this period of time where he's far away from the palace, far away from the throne of God. Looks like he's been defeated. But God was still working behind the scenes to accomplish exactly what he wanted and raise up the king who he wanted to be over his people. We can trust in God's plans even when it looks like he has been defeated. God can be trusted. And as his children, we must trust him. Let's pray. Father, we admit when we look at our um, life situation even today in our country, we don't know what's going to happen in the next month. We don't know what's going to happen in the next year, the next decade, the next century. We're afraid for what might happen for ourselves and for our children, grandchildren. But Lord, we're thankful that we can trust you and that we are... Christians who just happen to be Americans. Our kingdom is not of this world. Our kingdom is of another world, of another time. And Jesus is coming to reign as king in that kingdom. That 1,000 year reign and then on into eternity. And at that time it will be clear who is the sovereign. It appears at times when we, when we see spiritual defeats it appears that Satan is the, the sovereign overall. It appears that Satan's winning. But we know from your word and from your promises that you will win and that you are winning and that you have won through Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection. And so we have nothing to fear. 
how terrifying it must have been for David for months, maybe years, to be away from the throne and not sure what's going to happen next. But Lord, thankful that, that even in times like that, that David could and we can trust you. And while it seems pretty easy on the surface, when we look at it from a, a larger thumbnail perspective, we we know that it's not that easy when it comes to daily life when we see things crumbling all around us, when our enemies are winning. And so, Lord, we need to grow in our faith. We need to to fix our eyes back on you. So help us today to do that. Remind us of your sovereign power and your care. And help us to also follow David's example of mercy to those who, some who didn't deserve it. And um, help us to, to treat one another with love and care because we live in a world that is owned and operated by you and we ultimately will give an account to you thank you for calling us into your service into your family use us for the sake of your glory in jesus name amen